You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, or less, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. point at you that time. Oh, I'm Simon. Yeah, Simon didn't make it. So it's just the two of us. I am me. <clears throat> We've got no film reviews to do. Okay. We've got one Doctor Who story to talk about. So that should take us about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And we've got an email. So I was Matt. <laughs> and I was JR. <clears throat> and next week... <laughs> um, <clears throat> this email actually came in in October. Okay. I changed my browser and somehow it fell through the cracks. Right. So I just okay. discovered it this very afternoon. This is like time travel. This is this is very um this is very similar to the story we'll we'll, we'll be talking about. It is actually We're basically dipping into your past. <clears throat> exactly. Fortunately it doesn't relate to anything specific time wise, so <clears throat> So it's not a very important email. That makes a change. Well, I'll leave it up to you to decide. Okay. It says, Dear Indistinguishable Voices and oh. JR. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I've been listening to and enjoying Stroke Enduring your podcast for over a year now and have caught up with most episodes, some of them twice over. <laughs> okay. Your opinions are always interesting, even when they are plainly wrong, and the homoerotic interplay between you all often leaves me breathless and panting. Yeah. (laughs) I can understand that. If anybody here listening could actually see me and Matt sitting in this room, the homoerotic interplay is not exactly leaving the two of us breathless and panting. It's it's more when Lee's here. Lee's really the sort of the glue that binds the the sort of a... Oh, I don't want to know about Lee's glue. The homoflexible nature of this podcast together. He's a homoflexible. He is homoflexible. <laughs> Lee, yeah. yeah. Yeah, actually, you're right. He takes special yoga classes for it, just to make himself more supple. Do you think Simon's homo-soft, then? I think Simon just does whatever Lee wants him to do. I have heard they have, that. They have that sort of relationship. This is what that, happens yeah. when you claim that you're, <laughs> you can't make the podcast. <laughs> well, he comes up with these half-assed excuses, but it's always on a night when Lee doesn't make it either. Yeah, and when yeah. I say when Lee doesn't make it either, I mean Lee doesn't make it to the podcast. Yes, yeah. Whether Lee actually makes it yeah. or not, I couldn't say. I heard some fireworks earlier in the evening. I assumed it was fireworks. <clears throat> you never know. You may have thought you heard fireworks yeah. earlier in the evening, but maybe Lee popped around. <laughs> The email continues. I thought I would share my feelings about Doctor Who as everybody in fandom seems to have a different take on the show. Not surprising with 36 seasons series to take into account. Mm -hmm. My first memory of Doctor Who is Nightmare of Eden. And the scariest element for me was Tom Baker. Something about him gave me butterflies in my stomach. Something that actually occurred again when he ambled past me at the 50th celebration. My fear of him intensified in season 18 as he became brooding and dark. 
I would watch the programme through a gap in the door. I loved the Leisure Hive, and especially the Keeper of Tragen. Mm. Peter Davison was really my doctor, and I would watch him lying on the floor propped up on my elbows. The scene in Kinder where the snake tattoo is transferred between wrists is burned onto my memory. So was Peter Davison <clears throat> propped up on his elbows as he was lying on the floor? Or was he watching... Yes. Oh, he watched <clears throat> Peter Davison on the television. Okay. As he was lying on the floor, Sorry. propped up on his elbows. I thought it was another yoga thing. Mm. <clears throat> I'm, I'm listening. Sorry, terribly sorry, email reader. But you're probably not listening anymore because you're probably annoyed that your email didn't get read out two, two and a half months ago. I did write and apologise when okay. I got it today. I'm afraid as I was an eight-year-old boy and not yet a fan in 1984 when Davison became Baker, I stopped watching altogether after episode one of The Twin Dilemma. What's that? So he's born in 76. Yeah, I guess. So he's one year older than me, but he remembers... Nightmare oh, Nightmare of Eden. Eden. Okay, not Planet of Evil. It's very late. Carry on. <laughs> well, in that case, stop interrupting. Okay. Uh, apart from a brief attempt at part one of the trial season, I left Doctor Who behind and went off to punch girls in the arm and run away. My return to Doctor Who was courtesy of my local library in the 90s. Even when Lee's not here, we can't escape him, can we? <laughs> Me and my mate had become obsessed with Jason King, which was being repeated on Channel 4. Are you sure, actually, dear email writer, that it's girls that you're punching on the arm and running away from? It's my mate and I. It's the Jason King thing, more. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, When it stopped, we were looking for a replacement, and we discovered the unit years. It was a revelation, and I discovered that Doctor Who was, in fact, better than I ever knew it was. Hmm. We enjoyed those evenings so much, and while watching any Joe Grant stories, we would play Pants Watch. So, obviously, it is good that he was punching on the arm, after all. I think he's protesting too much, though. I think the Jason King really does. Yeah, actually, that's a giveaway, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He he slipped in the pant mention just because he thought we were the best, though. Yeah, I think you're right. Although, I'm hoping we're not recording this and he can hear. Yeah, we're recording. The biggest revelation, though, was yet to come. I tried a black and white story, The Daleks, and then another, The War Games, and I found them totally absorbing and mesmerising. They made me feel nostalgic for a time I never lived in. So I say it loud and proud, William Hartnell is my favourite Doctor. Colin Baker was let down by bad or mediocre scripts, and on viewing them now, I find a lot to like in his stories. Though I have all the classic DVDs, I have to be in a brave mood indeed to watch a McCoy story. The bald truth is, the man cannot act. The awful speech about bus stations in Ghostlight, for example, is ball-achingly bad. To have paired him with Sophie Aldred is even worse. Her acting in the same scene is lamentable. Oh, and don't get me started on Cartmel's master plan. Ouch. I hope he's not listened to the last few episodes where we talked about (laughs) McCoy. As for the new series, for me, it's just not Doctor Who. It should be about the Doctor arriving somewhere, finding something wrong, sorting it out, and leaving again. Instead, it's increasingly about exploring who the Doctor and the Companion is, and how their relationship works, etc., while a story may or may not be going on in the background. 
Anyway, there's a woman over there whose arm needs punching. Yeah. Sloppy kisses. A woman, sorry. <laughs> Sloppy kisses, son of Davros. Oh. And that is actually from uh, Sebastian Dross, who is son of Davros, okay. who used to have a podcast back in 2011, which ran for three episodes called The Podcast of Evil, right. which can still be found on the, what's it called? The Doctor Who Podcast Collective thing. Damn it, my brain is frozen. Oh no, I've no idea. Are, oh. we, are we on it? Yeah, we are. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a. Oh, what's it called? Oh, it's something like the Doctor Who Podcast Collective. And okay. It's got all Doctor Who podcasts oh, right. listed there, okay. and those are still available. So he brought. I mean, broadly speaking, he's the same generation. He's almost exactly the same <clears> as <throat> me. He's just one year advanced. But it sounds like Colin Baker tipped him over the edge. Whereas maybe that one year was just enough for me to endure Colin Baker or still find bits of Colin Baker scary like the Vervoids I found scary and maybe that sort of was enough to propel me into Sylvester McCoy which just got me Sylvester McCoy at the right time to make me nostalgic so maybe that one year was enough to completely change his perception of Doctor Who because he's wrong, obviously, about McCoy. Well, he's wrong about a lot I mean, of things, well, isn't yes. he? He's wrong, 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 wrong. I mean, I think, I think it's an interesting idea about the new series being about the character. I mean, he's right. The new series is more about the character of the Doctor developing than the old series was. But the question is whether that's a bad thing or not. I mean, it's possibly a necessary thing. It's. I don't think you can make Doctor Who anymore and not have it be about the Doctor... Not, TV not just doesn't really work that way anymore, no. does it? No. TV's changed. Yeah. I mean, every, every so often it will, I think, shift to being about the stories for a while and then the characters will develop over time. So you'll always... Well, it of, strikes a balance. You'll always move back to that. That's the back to basics approach. I, think. I mean, what he says is Doctor Who used to be about the Doctor Who turning up, finding something wrong, solving it and mm. moving on. And that's pretty much exactly what happened in the episode we've just watched. Yeah. Except oh, yes. the thing that he finds wrong is, uh, he doesn't realise it until near the end of the episode, the thing he finds wrong is a broken heart. Yes. And it turns out he can't actually mend it. Yeah. He patches it up just about enough, mm. and then he moves on. Yes. Because, of course, we've just watched A Christmas Carol. Mm. Okay, cards on the table. I think that is easily, far and away, by head and shoulders distance, the best of the Christmas specials and one of the very best episodes of Doctor Who there has ever been made. Okay. So that's my review. What okay. about you, Matt? Um, I d- so that's the second time I've seen it. Only the second time you've so, seen yeah. it? Yeah, I saw it on transmission. And maybe I've seen it, maybe it's the third. <clears throat> maybe I saw it again, just as a sort of rewatch. Um, I didn't like it as much on first broadcast no, as I did the second no, no, time no. I watched it. No. It was the second time I watched it when I realised how good it was. I think I enjoyed it more tonight than I did. I think, I think again, the atmosphere I was watching it in, which mm. was basically like, Christmas. you know, funereal focus with you, with you next to me. And also close, yeah, close to this Christmas. I think that, but not on Christmas Day when you're sort of distracted. I think the eye... The irony is Christmas Day is the time when you almost need much, much simpler stories because you're surrounded by distractions. <laughs> but actually, that was a very rich and not complex story because it's it detailed. was... Detailed. Yeah, detailed and nuanced. Yeah. And it was about... You think it's about uh, A Christmas Carol, which is about showing someone how his life could change. But actually, it's as you say, it's about his psychology. 
Well, <clears throat> the first question it begs is, <clears throat> because when it was about to come on, you know, first of all, we found out it was called A Christmas Carol, and then mm. the obvious thing was, how closely is it going to be based on A Christmas Carol? Well, how closely is it based on A Christmas Carol? To me, it takes the basis of what A Christmas Carol is and spins something almost totally new off from that. Yes. In fact, what I think is the really clever thing about it is that it says, what is it about A Christmas Carol that makes A Christmas Carol A Christmas Carol? Yes. And instead of taking the story beats, it takes the building blocks Mm. and builds something different. So, yeah, it takes... As you say, it takes the, the central elements. And I think the the thing I picked up <clears throat> that time, which I might not have done the first time, was how it's about conservatism and how it's about being a miser. But instead of money, this man has been conservative about this woman's years, this woman's life. And he's sort of kept this woman until he's too old, really, to appreciate her. Yeah. And he hasn't. he hasn't sort of... He doesn't look at the sort of short term. He's constantly looking at the long term and he's constantly trying to reserve it. And he reserves people and he's reserving this planet. So he doesn't want extra people to land. So it's that kind of, it's sort of exploded the sort of the Scrooge, the Scrooge hoarding money into an entire planet. But yeah. Doctor Who does the best. Okay, you've moved on from my question. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's kind of a political analogy, I Mm -hmm. suppose, in that sense. Yes. Yeah. But coming back, mm. it's a beautiful question. Which day would you choose? When I say it's beautiful, I mean beautiful in a very sad sort of a way. Yes. If you yeah. did know, I mean, there have been many short stories, especially in science fiction and fantasy, mm. about this question. Uh, short films and so on. Yeah. It's the sort of thing that Ray Bradbury would uh, do. Well, it's, it's also a very, very sort of almost cliched saying that if you had one day left to live, what would you do? Yeah, and this and, is, if you yeah. had to choose somebody else's last yes, day to yeah. live, what yeah. would you choose for them to do? When would you choose for it to be? Yeah, and it's about recognising... So the whole episode seems to be about Sardik's... Sardik not wanting to to have his last great day, because his last day with her will be his last great day, Yeah, and not recognising that actually her last day would be actually, it's more important her last day and it's for her so it's it's well, kind of giving that to her rather than and also it for him. obviously the message is it's not about when that day is but it's about what that day is yes yeah. so really it's saying rather than try and <clears throat> it's like i suppose essentially it's like saying if you knew if you had a family member or something yeah and they were terminally ill yeah i suppose the message that you would take from this would be Rather than try and pick something for them to do that, you know, because the irony in this is inconceivable, rather than pick something memorable for them to do yes. in their final hours, why not just make the thing that you're already doing in their final hours something special? Yeah. Make something special of what you're already doing anyway, rather yes. than try. Because if you're, I mean, it's like, um, <clears throat> I mean, this is going to sound horrible, but if you if you have like a family member and you take them off to Disneyland, yes, because they've got like a couple of weeks left to live, mm. then yes, you'll be getting to spend some special time with them. 
But actually, your focus is going to be on the external things yes. rather than on the person themselves. Mm-hmm. So actually, by going off and doing something, air quotes, special, yeah. you're kind of coming at it from the wrong direction, really. And, and this is, You'd be better off just sitting in front of the telly or whatever and enjoying their company. And this is kind of the mistake that, that I think the mistake that the doctor makes. I think the doctor makes a mistake because... Each each year, each Christmas day that he gives to them, he tries to make it more and more special, more, and it gets increasingly more and more bizarre. So he takes them to Paris and New York, and then he takes them to Frank Sinatra's party, and that's the sort of the ultimate, the ultimate sort of extravagance. Whereas, in fact, if he just left, if he just woken up the woman one day a week or one day a year. And just left them together to develop a relationship. Well, yeah, because that's actually, just, that might have worked faster. Because they're going off and seeing and doing all these other things yeah, and not spending yeah. that quality time in each other's company. And it's also about it's about presence. It's about giving presence. But all the all the Christmases that that they wake, um, I don't know what the, I can't remember the name of the woman. What's the name of the woman? Oh God! Yeah. We've like literally just come up from watching or Catherine Jenkins. Each yeah. day they wake Catherine Jenkins up. It's like giving Sardic a gift, but actually the revelation at the end is it's, it shouldn't be giving Sardic a gift. It's encouraging Sardic to give the gift to Catherine mm. Jenkins at the end. That's what he does, and that's the key to unlocking the the problem because Sardic then then has that kind of muscle memory of giving a gift rather than receiving a gift each year. Well, and that's what Christmas is about. It's, it's not about when you're a kid. It's about the excitement of receiving presents, and you're you're unwrapping presents. <clears throat> but as you get older, yes, it's nice to receive presents. But actually, it's about it's about giving presents and, and spending about, time. Yeah, yeah, and it's about choosing the presents to give to someone. And about finding well, and actually, the right this is a metaphor for family at Christmas because. Christmas tends to be the only time of the year when family actually gets together. Because, mm. you know, yeah, yeah. The kids so you... all move off to different areas of the country. Yeah. And oftentimes, Christmas was to be the only time of the year when everybody comes back together. Yeah. And, and as you were saying, it's the gift of being together rather than doing something, yeah. something special. And particularly with a British Christmas, there's always something slightly mundane about a British Christmas day. It's normally... In fact, British Christmas days, you don't normally go on holiday. You don't normally go down, go to a restaurant. So you're normally sat sitting at in home the room, yeah. watching, tele- watching television, yeah. watching Doctor Who quite often, yeah. which, you, which is, you know, fun, but it is mundane. It's, but that's, in that mundanity comes, you know, almost sort of a kind of festive homeliness. Plot beats. Mm hmm. The bit where we discover what the ghost of Christmas future is. Yeah. That was a hell of a twist that got me the first time around. And that really nails the story. Yeah. Really nails that Stephen Moffat understands what he's doing with the story. Yeah. Because it would have been so easy. It would be so easy to say to a writer, right, you've got Doctor Who, you've got the TARDIS, Mm. do a Christmas carol. And you get a bit in the past, a bit in the present, and then you go off and have a bit in the yeah. future. Yeah. But to take the past and make the present the future for the past yes. is really yeah. taking the story, understanding what makes the story work, yeah. understanding your own characters and yeah. where they need to be and what they're going through. Yeah. It's a really intelligent this is what, storytelling. This is what Moffat does, is he takes fairly standard types of stories and then he thinks, how would this work when you have a character who can time travel? Yeah. So in the past, 
the Doctor time traveling, you've kind of ignored the fact that the, the Doctor can time travel. Well, yeah. As as the the emailer was saying in the past, the Doctor arrives somewhere, he solves a problem, then he leaves, He's forgetting the, forgetting yeah. the fact that he has a TARDIS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in Black Orchid, say the TARDIS isn't the TARDIS is used to transport people like a bus from one location to the next, forgetting that it can travel in time. Whereas Moffat doesn't ignore that. He he accepts that actually the TARDIS makes stories difficult to tell because the TARDIS is an all-powerful machine. But then he... But then he turns that to his advantage, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's... This, more than many others, is possibly the most elegant way he's expressed that because he's taken... It's taken a really well-known... I mean, The Christmas Carol is a really well-known story structure. That sort of past, present, future is the perfect three-act structure. And this is... And he's given his twist on it. Well, and this is... Since he took over as showrunner, this is the single closest thing to Blink he's done. Right. In that he's taken a bunch of elements, he's spun a story out of them that Mm. revolves around time travel as one of the primary story beats. Yes. And he's told a wonderful story that all adds up, that's entirely self-contained. Mm-hmm. The only thing I really <clears throat> thought this story could perhaps have done without, but then it's such an inherent element of the story, you couldn't do without it. Mm. But it's the bit that kind of detracts slightly, is um, Amy and Rory in the spaceship. See, um, yeah. It, it could re- You could have lost Amy and Rory in the spaceship and it would still have been perfect. But, having said that, they had to be there. That peril had to be there. Yeah. yeah. There had to be that impetus for the Doctor to need to make the change. Yes. So, it's sort of an inherent thing. So, you couldn't really do I without think, it. I think without it, then this Sardic plot would be more immersive. Because, because then you'd obviously be completely involved in that. But with it, I quite like that sort of jarring... Yeah. <clears throat> and I think this comes down to the design, which is another thing that I really well, like about it. Well, I was going to bring this up. <laughs> but the de- but the design in both areas is so distinctive. You get the J.J. Abrams lens flare white Star Trekky thing going yeah, on. Yeah, with the spaceship. And then you get the steampunk Victorian, uh, the moss, not moss, foggy, yeah, foggy yeah. design. And those two are obviously purposefully like it's a glorious special effect apart. when we first go down into the city. Actually. Yeah, yeah. That's the first time I've watched it on Blu-ray, and right. that just looked fantastic yes. when we yeah. went into the city. Yeah. It's Michael Pickwood. Yes, it's his first it's, story. It is his first, and it's a real sea change, isn't it? I think. Yeah, it's distinctive. I think. I oh, would, absolutely. So, so I, there's no I think about it. No, no, it's distinctive, and I think. I think it sort of sets a kind of a tone for the next, yeah. however many years it's been, five years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of design, this will be the sort of the Pickwood years. I don't know if he's, is he, well, we don't know. No, he's do gone. We? He's gone. Yeah. So I, th- I think possibly that's, I mean, obviously I love him as a designer, but that's probably a good thing because then you can have the next. But I was watching this thinking, remembering um, the Christmas Invasion. And comparing the two, and it's just there's no comparison. Just, there's no comparison. One isn't better than the other. I don't think they're in just terms so of design, different. They're just so different, and I like that. I like the fact that the series can suddenly flip into this. I mean, it's very interior, which is a very Michael. This is the thing, bit is he does things in inside a lot more. When Moffat took over, everybody said, 
the big thing was he's going to do it as a dark fairy tale. Mm. And I think this is the moment where that actually turns up on screen. Yeah. Because I think series five, I mean, don't get me wrong, series five is lovely and it has some great moments and there are some fantastic episodes. Yeah. But I think this is the moment where you actually get to see that sort of, and steampunk is kind of what it is. Steampunk is like taking something old and taking something new and finding a way of meshing them together yeah. and kind of that makes them both consistent, as yeah. it were. And that is the perfect metaphor for what Pickwood and Moffat are doing mm. here. Yeah. Because they're taking something... They're taking the science fiction thing yeah. and they're taking the complete fantasy thing. Mm. And the fairy tale element in between is how do you mesh things together where yeah. the scientific explanation sort of makes sense. And for every little bit of magic that the Doctor's doing, he's toffing mm. off, tossing off scientific explanations yes, over his yeah. shoulder that everybody's yeah. ignoring. Yeah. But yeah. it's all there. And the design here is the first time that the, the pictures yeah. actually make sense of the words Yes, yeah. in that way. I mean, I, God, the, uh, the control device for the, the clouds is basically a pipe organ. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's quite obvious with stops and starts. There's a film, there's a Canadian film called Archangel, um, which this reminded me of, and it's you know, possibly an influence because it's quite, it's quite a well-known film in certain parts. But it's got that Archangel is a sort of a mock silent movie, and it's uh, got that kind of steampunk, that kind of dark, yeah, yeah. dark fog goggles that people. Well, that's very and um... fog. <clears throat> but the silent movie again, that. That's what that's what this this reminded me of. This well, that's also Jenna and Caro's thing yes, in um, yeah, yeah. City of Lost Children yeah, and uh, yeah. Delicatessen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a bit, yes, and that's the big influence that comes back in in um, World Enough and Time. Yeah, yeah, as well. This, that, yeah, yeah. That's another. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of tying into. It's still it's still very Doctor Who. It's almost perfectly Doctor Who like because. Doctor Who's always had an affinity with the Victorian, yeah, yeah, Victorian yeah. age, even though it's not set there as much as people no. think. But there's something about the character of the Doctor. The Doctor is a steampunk Victorian, even before steampunk was invented. Well, as I was saying before, the, is the TARDIS yeah. and the the outfits. He's Jules Verne meets yeah. H.G. Wells, yeah. isn't he? And this is sort of taking that and extrapolating it. But has Doctor done Doctor Who done steampunk to this extent before? I don't Ooh. think so, not really. Not not in terms of not in terms of almost a complete design. So it's yeah, it's a it's a what Pickwood manages to do, he doesn't just have a few design elements or a few scenes that do does the no, the whole thing. The whole thing is like yeah. I mean as much like <clears throat> like Gallifrey and Deadly Assassin, the great thing about that is it's it's quite an immersive immersive world or as, as, immersive, as immersive as they could afford back in, then. yeah back but in with costumes and, yeah, set, yeah, yeah. and setting but this um, <clears throat> it does that but it doesn't do it so ostentatiously that it kind of overwhelms you no it's kind of mostly fairly subtle I mean yeah. that the pipe organ thing is about uh, the most obvious yeah but the rest of it is just little touches but yes. the little touches are absolutely everywhere. Yeah. So there's never anything that takes you away from it. The telephones that they're using and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. And then yeah. He, and then the doctor fits in absolutely perfectly because all yeah. of a sudden his technology, especially when the sonic screwdriver becomes broken, mm-hmm. and it's the two halves of the sonic screwdriver that's sort of mending the plot. Yeah. And it could have been <laughs> it could have been a completely bizarre 
I mean, you've got fish, you've got steampunk, yeah, yeah, you've got a Christmas Carol, you've got a spaceship, and you've got the Doctor. Oh, and, but... some, and actually, the design work makes sense of it all. It's sort of and yeah. actually, everything that's in there is in there for a reason, hmm. and everything that's in there is completely consistent with all the other things that are in there. Yeah. So the whole thing, it does become a very real a very real place that you can believe in. Yeah. That was the other there were two plot things that I wanted to mention, and that was the other one, is um <clears throat> at the end of the story, when he's devoted all this time to getting Kazran Sardik to change his mind, and when he does change his mind, he's realised that he's changed the man and the isomorphic controls no longer work for him. Yeah. I thought at that point that the kid was going to step up and use the machine. Yes. But actually, no, then they have to go without the machine yes. and use her. Yes. Which yes. obviously is the perfect way to end the story it because is. that's where the story yes. has to end. But what I really liked about that mm. is that it sets you up throughout the entire thing for thinking that solving the problem is going to be getting Sardic to change his mind. Yeah. And then pulls that rug away from you at the end. Yes. I think possibly the explanation of why she was the one that was slightly too rapidly, <laughs> rapidly given for me. I think. How do you mean the explanation? Because so the, her... the, exp- the explanation <clears throat> that I think there was one line where it said that her singing placated the shark, so her singing could then clear the clear the skies. And they said, um, think... "We know this works." Yeah. We have to use some. We're so short of time. We've got yes. to use something we know works. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, we know this yeah. works. I mean, he gets away with it. And I think that's fine because you see her doing it earlier. Yeah. So Do it's not like it comes out. It's not like it's just a word explanation. Yeah. It's an explanation you've yes. actually seen on screen. Do this is the sort of thing that Lee would um, that Lee would possibly mention, and I don't normally have a problem with it. But old Sardic and young Sardic touching one another. We we know in Doctor Who, Uh from Morden Undead to Father's Day and beyond, that you really can't touch young versions of yourself or versions of your father. No, because in Father's Day they do. In Father's Day, Rose touches herself as a baby. Yeah, she picks the baby up, and and it's fine. And that causes doesn't that cause big, big monsters to appear? (laughs) No, no, the big monsters are already there. Right. Okay, when she picks up okay. the baby, it's fine. Oh, okay, okay. It's only it's only Mordred and I'm dead. Right. Oh, well, maybe Where... in that case, maybe the time war has stopped this from being an issue. Well, yeah, but then you go back further to the three doctors, and I'm sure at points in the three doctors. Well, if you go back to any multiple <coughs> doctors, don't exactly. You're well, what I'm saying yeah. is, actually, Mordred and I'm dead is the odd one out. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they've kind of in Mordred and I'm dead. They've kind of taken something that was a possibility mm. but there well, was yeah the person's never actually, seen it maybe maybe Mordred and Undead isn't unusual because they don't necessarily touch do they touch in Mordred and Undead but they certainly meet and then they have that almost like Sardic has short circuit this thing. kind of short <clears throat> circuit of memories because a loop oh, of, a that, loop yeah, of yeah. memories that sort of clears and unlocks everything and that's sort of what happens here. None of Mordred Undead makes any sense. The t- <clears throat> I've always said it, but the time element, the six-year time travel paradox element in Mordred Undead has got nothing to do with the rest of the story. Mm. It's just there. It's just there to take this fallacy and use that as a cure for the plot. 
Yes. Uh, it yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <clears throat> nice to see the Brigadier. That's about all there is that you can say about Mordred Undead. <laughs> yes. Um, what did you think of the acting? I mean, Matt Smith's glorious. Matt Smith's very good. Catherine I think Jenkins? Catherine Jenkins is fine. Um, they don't give her a lot of dialogue, which is probably sensible because she's not a professional yeah, actress. Yeah. That, that but what she does do, she what she does, does do is well fine, enough. But it does change the character. So normally Stephen Moffat characters are very voluble and very uh, they talk a lot. So you notice when a character is quiet a lot. But maybe that's she felt it, it felt a little bit when she sang at the end like she was rather than necessarily a character but a plot device in order to end up singing to me. Because she hadn't developed a personality. Yeah, I don't know. I thought there was enough there. Right. I <clears throat> I think maybe you Do you see what I mean? That, I see what you mean. Compared to compared to other female <clears throat> characters in other stories. Who but they don't who always have a personality. Like no. This is one of the criticisms of Stephen Moffat, is that all his female characters are the same. Yeah. But then you look back over the years and people are basically talking about three or four of the main ones. Yes. When yeah. you look at the other ones he's written at various times. Go back to The Empty Child. Yeah. And um, I can't remember the character's name, but the girl who turns out to be the boy's mother. Right. She's not a sassy, wise-cracking, no, fast-talking... No. I mean, but she says also... a few sort of clever, clever things. Yeah. But, but it's not just not about much. her saying clever or witty things. I think it's about her having... A personality? I'm not sure what her personality well, is, other than in relation to Sardic or in relation to the Doctor. She's well, sort she's of transported one, to places. She's the one who knows she's running out of time. Yeah. As we yeah. discover at the end. Yeah. So she's always... Well, yeah, I kind of... I thought that was fine because... I, mean, I, see, why they've, I see why they've done it. Well, you, she can't... Well, I mean, I suppose she could. She could yeah. say, look, I've only got eight days to live. Hmm. But you wouldn't, would you? No. I mean, mm. that's another thing. Is like he he says, which day would you choose? But if you had that information and you knew that the others weren't aware of it, yeah, what's the moment you choose to tell them? Yeah, <clears throat> Michael Gambon, Gambon. Oh wow, he's, he's just unbelievably good. He's unbelievably good. After after a bit, I think, I think at the beginning, I'm not quite convinced because Michael Gambon sometimes has that kind of Cockney. When he's so he's being funny and he's being hard, so he's but, yeah. but when he starts actually remembering to, oh, to yeah, watch yeah. his faces, he starts to remember, and when he starts to be sort of torn and yeah, yeah, becomes yeah. good, that's when he starts acting. But you couldn't do that unless you'd have those first you, 10 minutes, yes, yeah. So yeah. you need those first 10 minutes to get there, and I yeah. still think he's excellent in those first 10 minutes, yes, and if he'd been yeah. like that all the way through. I think he'd still have been a believable character because he sells it to you. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yes, that first, that opening scene. Uh, yeah. When I say the opening scene, the opening scene with Gambon, where yes. he has the family. Yeah, yeah. And he's doing I a want, bit of Moffat. I, I, I wonder, for me, if that had been slightly darker and they sort of emphasised the fact that he is not evil, but just, just disappointed in life as but, it, but he's still but I think they had to lift it slightly because it's a Christmas episode <clears throat> and it's Moffat with a few sort of witty witty self-referential jokes yeah and I maybe. think they they were just in it's either Gamble's performance or the the tone of it I think it needed to be for me it's just slightly darker and then you lift it out oh maybe but, but that's, that's just a small fine. thing 
you got through it. Um, and I like the kid. The kid was really good. The kid was really good. Yeah. yeah. I mostly. I mean, Stephen Moffat is probably the first writer to actually use kids mm. a lot in yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah. Because I don't think you. Re- I don't know what how often that is, but it feels like you don't go through maybe more than five or six episodes without getting a kid in quite a big part. And it's probably... By and large, they've always been really good. And it's probably no coincidence that it tends to be with Matt Smith because you get the impression that Matt Smith is... as well, yeah. But Matt Smith in particular is an actor who gets the best out of Well, this is... Yeah, the opening... Because they bounce off (laughs) one another. Well, the opening scene of uh, 11th Hour said that sort yeah. of in that tone for with, his era. With Capaldi, I think it's different because with Capaldi, it's not a question of Capaldi becomes childlike. He gives the kids... It's more like sandscaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, that's a different dynamic. But still, oh, yeah. it still works. But I think with Matt Smith, there's a very special sort of... The bit where they're in the cupboard waiting for the fish yeah. and they're just chatting was mm. just lovely. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, well, I mean, a lot of the story was just lovely, but that bit mm. in particular was great. Yeah. Yeah. And the um, the um, conceit of using the film yes. that Matt Smith yeah. goes into, yeah. and then yeah. you get to see Kazran Sadik reacting to the film as his memories yeah. change. Yeah. What a wonderful conceit. Yes. And, and, and what, I mean, when I first saw it, the bit where Matt Smith turns up in the film, how well done was that? Yes. yes. As the moment in the story where you suddenly realise what the story is going to be. And the look of it as well, because it looks like a silent movie, which, which yeah. is what brought Archangel to mind. But also it signifies pastness. It signifies history because it's a silent movie. But they explain that there's no reason for it to look like a silent movie because this is, you know sort of future technology, but they explain it away by being a recovered artefact that he's yeah, had to yeah, yeah. recover. So they sort of even have an explanation as to why it looks silent. But you kind of accept it because it's yeah. it's got that past. Everything in there has got an explanation, mm. but they're all usually tossed off so quickly that yeah. if you they're there if you want them. Yeah. But you don't need them. But yeah. for people who want the and there are things. There are sort of imagery that comes back in later Christmas episodes. So the the TARDIS in the clouds and the, and um, the sleigh, sleigh. Ride. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so obviously this is sort of like a template. This is a template for the Moffat Christmas specials. I think it sort of is. It's a fantastic one, though. Hmm. Yeah. Um, do you want to give it a score? Um, I would say. So I think it's fantastic, but it's still it's still not the Christmas special that I enjoy the most. So oh, really? I would give it 8 out of 10. Yeah. What was the Christmas special you enjoyed the most? I haven't decided most? yet, but I think the snowmen. The snowmen is fun. I still okay. like the snowmen. Yeah. Just because I'm a big... Well, the only one yeah. of Moffat's Christmas specials I don't really like is the widow, the Which wardrobe, the wardrobe. And the whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. So I it? give it 8 out of The widow, the witch and the wardrobe? No, that can't be right. Okay. I can't remember what it is. Oh, my God. Well, well, never mind. <clears throat> oh, I'm giving it a straight ten. Okay. I think it's one of the top ten episodes of Doctor Who ever, frankly. Mm. Did I you just... put it in your top ten when you did the top ten? Oh, we did top five, didn't we? Did we top five? Did yes. you put it in the top five? Uh, no, but it would have been in the top ten. Right. It was okay. hovering on the edges of the okay. five. Okay. 
I don't know. On, on any other given day, I may have put it in the top. It's strange to think that maybe there have been so many Christmas specials, so a 13th of all of new Doctor Who is yeah, a Christmas yeah. special. So it's it's sort of, it's a strange thought that actually we're now almost, there are more Christmas special, Christmas set episodes. There's a whole season's worth of, yeah, there are. of Christmas set episodes. <clears throat> well, there's a set of them. Yeah. Christmas set episodes and I think that that kind of I don't know that just struck me it's snowed quite a lot in Christmas in, in Doctor Who generally in Doctor Christmas Who. special will include a scene where it snows where it's not real snow yeah Steve and um, Russell T Davis set that up didn't he in, yeah um, the ashes coming yeah. in the sky whereas this is real snow well it's no it's not because it's um well they've cleared the clouds and that has the effect of it snowing I think. yeah so it's it is, so it's, yeah. it's it's ice crystals, yeah, which is snow, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, it's not natural snow. It's uh, it's yeah, it's actual snow, scientifically created snow. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. You're right. There's enough. And what will this be? This will be the thirteenth. Do you think this will be the last Christmas special for a while? No, I don't think so. Mm. I think. That's why Stephen Moffat's done it. He said right. if he hadn't have done this Christmas special, because he was intending for Capaldi to regenerate at the yes. end of um, The Doctor Falls, and yeah. he said then he realised there wasn't going to be a Christmas special, and he said the reason he did it was to make sure there was one so that Chris Chibnall would still have that precedent set so that he could okay. carry on with them. Right. Okay. So as far as I'm aware, they haven't announced a Christmas special, because no. a Christmas special will presumably be... The way it normally works is the Christmas special is the first episode recorded of the next... Yeah. ...of the following series. I just wonder whether they'll... they'll take a break for one Christmas special to see how the season, the new season, goes down. I and don't then commit to it the following year, potentially. Well, Capaldi's first Christmas special was just a few weeks after the end of his first series. Right. He was an autumn yeah. series. Mm-hmm. His first two. Yeah. No, I don't think they will. I, okay. I, I think actually, there's more reason for them to go ahead and do a Christmas special, mm. especially if the rumor about series eleven being one self-contained story is true. Mm. Then the Christmas special is your first opportunity to see the new production team, the new Doctor, the new companions, kicking back and having an adventure. Right. Okay. So I think there's more reason than not for them to go ahead and do it. Yeah. So I think it's more likely that there will be. Okay. And even if that's not the case, I think your first Christmas special is a chance to show a different side to your doctor. Yeah. And to your team. So for instance here, you know, through series 5 you had the doctor beset by the cracks in time. Mm. So there was always this kind of urgency underneath the episodes. Yeah. So even though it didn't necessarily feel like one self-contained story, it always felt like one episode was propelling you onto the next. Yeah. And this was the first episode with Matt Smith where the whole series just sort of stopped and said, right, let's just have a story. Mm -hmm. How it felt to me. Yeah. So I guess the same with Jodie Whittaker. I would expect it. Yeah. Okay. There's no reason to stop. They're doing well enough. Yeah. I mean, that's as much as you can ask for. Um, well, 
not as long as our usual episodes, but is there anything else you want to bring up, or should we call it a night? On the... I've seen no films. No, no. Well, it's only a couple of days since we yeah, recorded yeah, the yeah. last episode. Yeah. In that case, next week we'll have some kind of preview of Christmas, where we'll talk about various things. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll probably be talking about Jodie Whittaker and stuff as well, of course, because that's all involved in Christmas as well now. Yes. But until then, then, I was JR. I was Matt. And we'll speak again soon. Bye.